This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, Brexit delusionment seemed to reach a new low, with Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May trying to find a way to break the deadlock. So, is our political system doomed and will it ever be the same again after all this is done? We also take a look at British rape laws and whether they're fit for the age of Me Too. And finally, we ask, should we be begging our friends for donations? Iraq, the financial crisis, the expenses scandal. These are all events in recent history that shook our faith in the political class. But James Forsyth argues in this week's issue that the damage they did to trust would be nothing compared to a failure to deliver Brexit. The question is, though, will our political system ever be the same again after all this is over? Our deputy political editor, Katie Balls, spoke to James earlier, along with Tim Shipman, political editor of The Sunday Times. So we are back talking about Brexit again after another dramatic week in Westminster. James, in your cover article, you say that both main parties have been hugely damaged by Brexit and it might even challenge the very structure of the two-party system we have in British politics. Before we get to that, since last week, we have had Theresa May's deal rejected for a third time. We've had MPs reject all options in indicative votes for a second time. And Number 10 have now invited Jeremy Corbyn into Brexit talks. Where do you see Brexit going from here? Well, I think the interesting thing is what is not happening today. When Theresa May invited Jeremy Corbyn in for Brexit talks, Downing Street said, look, we want to try and get all this wrapped up by Friday night so we can get in touch with the EU in good time for, on Monday, ahead of the meeting of the European Council on Wednesday, because that's what maximises the chances of the UK getting the kind of extension it wants. We are on Thursday and nothing much is going on in the House of Commons. The House of Commons is not sitting on Friday, so there is no chance of any movement before Monday in terms of a common saying what it wants. So I think that shows what happens with this Brexit process, which is every deadline seems to get missed and that progress is very, very slow. I think I think the crucial question here is, you know, do these two, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, I think they are unlikely to come to agreement between the two of them. But can they even come to agreement on what votes you should put to the House of Commons and crucially on an agreement to help this withdrawal agreement bill through once something has won in the Commons. Because I think one of the dangers of what's happening now is something could win in the Commons because there's a single transferable vote system used or something like that. But then there's no sustainable majority for actually turning that outcome into legislation. Tim, when you wrote your first Brexit book, um, there have been... A hundred years ago. (laughs) All that war. Did you ever expect things would turn out as they have done? No. (laughs) Care to elaborate? Well, it's been absolutely ridiculous, hasn't it? Uh, It's, it's, what, three years ago that all this was happening and it feels like a hundred. I think we've all aged. uh, Looking around here, James and I are battling off the grey. And uh, I don't think... You know, lots of journalists sit around moaning about what is happening and the intensity with which it is happening. But this is the most remarkable period in British politics in pushing a century. And I think what has surprised a lot of people who work in Westminster, who are used to somehow common sense and call it the middle ground, if you like, or the grown-ups taking over, 
some kind of solution being reached. But as James says, at every single stage in this process, the craziest thing has happened. And at every stage in this process, if there has been an opportunity for nothing to happen and it to move on to the next sort of phase without any particularly meaningful resolution, that is what has occurred. Now, part of that flows from the character of the Prime Minister, who, if she can spot one blade of grass in the middle distance, decides to punt whatever it is she's doing behind it. But at the moment, she's looking at a, a sort of battlefield where there's not a lot of grass uh, to punt things into, but she's still somehow finding a way to, to kick things down the road. Everyone says she's running out of road. I forget the number of times I've quoted someone saying there is no road left, but but yet there is still some road, and, and we still sit and wait and wonder if any of these people can come to a conclusion. Where do you think that road is heading? Where does it end up? Well, I think it's heading towards you know another smash-up of some description between people in different parties. Emotions are running extremely hot at the moment. There's a leak in the House of Commons chamber at the moment, dripping water, and I just received a text from a Remainer saying that this was the flowing of Marc Francois's tears. Now, as you know, Marc Francois is uh, one of the hard tears. He's getting particularly energised about the situation. But that's sort of the level of uh, discourse at the moment. Um, people are being very rude about each other, and they're not yet finding a solution. And unless, as James says, there's some kind of system that forces people to accept that they might have to accept their second favourite option, right now, people are still voting for their favourite option. You know, you have hard tears and hard remainers in the same voting lobbies, killing off things that might form a compromise view. And I don't think most of us think that Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May are themselves going to be able to cut through that. James, we have a lot of people talking at the moment about compromise. Do you think anyone talking about compromise in the House of Commons is actually willing to compromise? No. I mean, sorry, there are some exceptions, but largely, you know, I thought it was a classic moment when Caroline Lucas stood up after all the indicative vote options failed on Monday suggesting that the compromise solution was to have a referendum putting Remain against Theresa May's deal plus a customs union. You know, quite what all the people who voted for Brexit last time round would think about that choice. She didn't, didn't seem to, I mean, literally didn't seem to have entered her head. This seemed to be her the obvious consensus position was to, to give her what she wanted. And, um, and has she changed her position, Caroline Lucas, since two years ago? No. And th- this is the issue here. I mean, I, I was very struck because... One cabinet minister was saying to me yesterday that they think we're heading for another referendum. And I said, well, why? Because his theory, which is, which is worth bearing in mind, is that the ERG and the people's vote will vote against everything that is not their option. And if, they, if those two blocks do that with discipline, they basically can prevent anything getting a majority. And if nothing can get a majority, you are stuck. And if you're stuck, there's only two ways to break the logjam a referendum or a general election. And the theory goes that both sides, the bulk of MPs on both sides of the House would actually, if they had to, you force them to choose between the two of them, would rather go for the referendum. And also, the other key point there is that the one thing those two groups share is that they both believe they might win that referendum. And that is, you know, there is a lot more in common between the two extremities of this debate than there is the sort of slightly confused, baffled middle that has had 30 years of getting its own way and is not getting its own way at all at the moment. And I think the kind of question now becomes, ultimately, when these options come back, do you basically, are Labour MPs who don't want a second referendum prepared to basically vote in an STV model for Theresa May's deal as number two? And are Tory MPs prepared to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's deal as number two? Because if they are, then one of those options could actually end up triumphing. But 
I think that, as we've all been saying, that, you know, this commitment to purity is such that it's entirely possible that lots of MPs will boast that they are own, they are not going to use their second vote in this contest, that they only want to vote for their entirely desired outcome. Now, Tim, when we look at the talks that Theresa May is having with Jeremy Corbyn, the suspicion and I suppose fear amongst a lot of Tory Brexiteers is this means a permanent customs union could be what they settle on. Do you think that really does offer a way out of this conundrum that is something that can pass the House of Commons? I think it's possible, but I think it's something that has been elevated into, they have a phrase in Hollywood called the MacGuffin, which is the thing in the film, which is sort of the essence of the film, like the the statue of the Maltese falcon, but in essence is actually completely meaningless. It's just a thing that people focus on. At every stage of this process, what has been defined as hard and soft Brexit has changed depending on whatever the issue of the day is. At the moment, the customs union is perceived to be the point equidistant between the two extremities uh, without most people fully understanding what it is and what its implications are. Most people who've studied it in any detail uh, find reasons to dislike it on both sides of this debate but for some reason the people who just want compromise think, ah, but this is where the numbers are, we must all vote for something like this and what would probably happen is even if it passed there'd be a bit more scrutiny and if we found ourselves in it we would be getting out of it pretty sharpish. The irony as well is there is the back stop is a better version of a customs It's a much union. better version. <laughs> and so we're having this, all these people who like to pride themselves, as Tim said, on being reasonable, moderate people, they basically, you know, would have rose by the numbers, name, name, smell of sweet. They don't want to vote for the thing as it is because it's in Theresa May's deal. They want something else to say that they've not voted for a Tory Brexit. Now, James, looking at that voter backlash that you talk about in your cover piece, are we heading for European Parliament elections? And if so... What do you think the main elements or the politics of those will be? Well, I think the EU will make it a condition of any extension that the UK prepares for European Parliament elections. But they'll probably say, look, if you can manage to get yourself legally out before then, you obviously won't need to hold them. Given the success of the House of Commons so far in meeting deadlines, I think we are highly likely to have European Parliament elections. And I think that's going to produce the mother of all protest votes. I think on both, because this debate is polarising, on both sides you will see voters turning up to back the people who are either the no-deal people, whether that's Brexit or the Brexit party or UKIP, and on the other side you'll see people turning up to vote for the pure second referendum campaigners, whether that be you know Change UK, the new name for the independent group, or the Liberal Democrats. I think it is going to be an expression of voter rage. If you look at this, you know, I mean, more than three quarters of voters think that Parliament has handled this badly. More than 80% of voters think the government has handled this badly. That That has got to lead to you some kind of You do wonder what the other the 20% ballot. have been looking at all <laughs> this time. Anyway. That has got to lead to some kind of reckoning at the ballot box. Now, Tim, James writes in his cover piece that both parties are going to be damaged by Brexit. Listeners to this podcast are fairly familiar with how this would damage the Tories, especially a customs union. But do you think the Labour Party faces similar challenges? I think it does, but I certainly think the challenges uh, internally are as deep and as potentially sort of fractious and vicious. But the bottom line is, if you're the governing party, you're the one who's going to get the blame and the attention. And voters at the moment, at least, are fairly uninterested in what's going on inside the Labour Party. You can envisage a world in which this Labour leader, or indeed the next one, has quite a 
lot of trouble keeping together a coalition of North London Liberals and working class people in Leave voting areas in the north of England. Equally, if this is the government that gets absolutely pounded at the next general election for presiding over a period of chaos and national embarrassment, which is what a lot of voters seem to think it is, I would have thought the, the Labour Party will be able to just about hold itself together in the face of that. But, you know, it's potentially very bad. And then, you know, you look at the numbers, something like, you know, 80% of the most Leave seats in Britain are Labour held seats and 80% of the of the most Remainery seats are, are Labour held seats. And that's a very difficult coalition to put together. I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is perceived to be a, a not effective uh, leader of the opposition. But if he manages to negotiate his way through this, keeping enough of the balls in the air for long enough to let the Tory party fall apart before the Labour party falls apart, I think he will be perceived eventually to have paid a bit of a blinder here. Now, James, given the mess the Conservative Party is in and any future leader will probably have to inherit, why would anyone say and want to be the next leader of the Tory party? There is no source of people who want to be the next leader of the Tory. I mean, look, there's this. You are essentially, because the Tories are currently in government, you are essentially, you are essentially, if you see if we can do kind of Radio 4 style sound effects, you are essentially jangling the keys to number 10 <laughs> in That's front quite nifty for of this podcast. their faces. And that is why they're not going to resist this. If you turn around to most politicians and said, you can have 18 months in number 10, we can't guarantee to you how you're going to fare at the end of it, but do you want to take the chance? Nearly like 99.9% of them would say yes. And I think one of the other things here is it is remarkable to say this, considering the trouble the government is in, the next election is not necessarily lost for the Tories. You know, you can see how they could actually, even from this dire position that they are currently in, you could see how they could win. And it is the nature of politicians to believe that they are the person who could do that, who could get there. I also think one of the reasons this field is going to be so big is that I think I think lots of the cabinet look at Theresa May and think, well, I could do a better job than that. Now, you you could debate whether they're accurate or not, but I think people think that you know you, you know I I would be better I would do better than this, and so they want to give it a crack. No, exactly. I think you under I think we perhaps. We underestimate the degree to which May is in a sort of systemically difficult position, and certainly people in the cabinet underestimate that. I think they think it's all her fault because she's hopeless and can't, you know, couldn't sell a cold drink in in a hot desert. And you know, they are absolutely right about that and about her abilities. But that's what gives them the belief that they can turn this thing around. You know, everybody looks in the mirror and and sees a miracle worker. Some of them may even be right. But the premise of your question, I think, was quite interesting. It's, I don't think it's a given that everybody running for Tory leader is sane. And finally, Tim, you're working your third Brexit book. Do you think that's going to be your last? Well, I was talking to a member of May's Downing Street staff the other day who said we're doing our best to turn it into a trilogy rather than a tetralogy, which I was very grateful for. I wasn't quite clear if that meant that they were planning to get rid of the Prime Minister quicker than planned or whether they were going to resolve Brexit. That was a question that remained deliciously hanging in the air. I would certainly like to conclude it in three volumes, but the third volume may have to be the sort of level of war and peace, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you, James. That was James Forsyth, Katie Balls and Tim Shipman. Next, since its birth in 2017, the Me Too movement has changed the Western world and the lives of men and women within it. One such man is Chris Dorr. He's a criminal QC who specialises in rape law and has found himself increasingly defending men who've been accused of rape. 
He writes in this week's issue that the present approach of rape law just doesn't seem to be working. He joins me now together with Sarah Green, the co-director of the campaign group End Violence Against Women. Chris, you begin your piece this week with a story about this young man who you defended who was accused of rape. Can you start by explaining to us how you thought that case was handled and whether the authorities did the right thing? Well, that's not an individual story. That's a kind of a composite of a number of different situations because obviously I couldn't discuss an individual case in an article. But it represents an increasing number of cases that come to me and have been coming to me now for the last several years from environments where in the past you wouldn't have necessarily expected the police to be involved, mainly in the university environment where in the past uh, these things wouldn't have come to the police. And so, you know, the great majority, if not all of the cases I've dealt with of this kind, have ended up not resulting in criminal charges and no one being taken to court. So that's, I guess, the subject matter of the article is why are so many cases being the subject of complaints and then ending up going nowhere and not even making it to court, not even being any charges. So do you think what we're seeing here is more women feeling kind of emboldened to come forward and say that they think they have been raped? I think, yeah. So government statistics show, police statistics, that over the last five years we've got a very, very significantly increased rate of reporting of rape and other sexual offences. So that's around 16,000 five years ago to 41,000 for the last full year. They are complicated and um, rape and rape law and the prosecution of rape doesn't function very well, frankly, across our whole system. I don't actually think there's anything unusual about these, the kind of university cases that Chris is describing among, you know, some of your language makes it sound like it's usually quite privileged people who maybe ought to know better or something. I think it's sometimes not helpful to exceptionalise that group of people when actually we've got problems with rape throughout the whole system. Chris, you talk about in your piece this capacity to consent. Can you explain what exactly that is and what the legal guidance is on that? Yes, well, it's it's really quite straightforward. Any, anyone, male or female, is incapable of consenting to any form of sexual activity if they're incapacitated. For example, by taking drugs uh, to the extent that, they, that they're unable to, to, to know what they're doing anymore, or, of course, drinking large amounts of alcohol. It means that they have no capacity to consent. So any sexual activity, by definition will be criminalised and in the case of uh, where where you have a man and a woman engaging in sexual activity the man will be criminalised and of course the woman would have no capacity to consent and therefore it would be considered to be a sexual offence whether it be rape or sexual assault so that's how the law works. And I mean do you think the law is, is right on that? Yes I think it must be right I mean I think you you know if someone's incapable of consenting to any any activity then it must be right that 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 activity is criminalised if someone takes advantage of that situation. Sarah, do you think young men are aware that that is the law? I hope so. I hope they are brought up in a way that their parents, friends and peers are acquainting them with the law, but not just the law, like with good sexual ethics. Do you really want to do something to somebody who doesn't want you to do it or isn't really available? I would hope that, um, from now on anyway, we're going to see much better relationships and sex education in our schools, which is something that's only recently been put properly into law and we should see rolling out um, over the next few years, which means that when young people, those who get to university, arrive, they ought to have had good opportunities to talk about consent and boundaries and and their morality around these issues before they get to Freshers' Week. But um, to answer your question, it's not... simply a question of do young men kind of know what they're doing or do they really understand before we stray into the notion that rape or sexual assault involve kind of misunderstanding or miscommunication uh, for most people 
most people know very well when their boundaries have been violated and when they didn't want to do something and the person doing it knows when they're doing it and actually it's a lot of the kind of cultural dressing around these issues that is hiding and obscuring what's going on. Chris, is it not the case that lots of people do end up getting together after a few drinks and you know obviously the next day there can be regret but does the law sort of allow for any kind of nuance on that? No, the law's very clear that if there's lack of capacity at the time that the sex takes place, then that is rape. And what the law, of course, doesn't criminalise is behaviour that is consensual and then is regretted the following day and there are maybe ramifications for both parties. But the law is very clear that that if there's no capacity, there's no consent and therefore it's either sexual assault or, or rape. In factual terms, do many of the cases turn on the suggestion that there was in fact consent but there was thereafter regret which led to a false complaint that's often the nature of defences in these cases and the nature of the, the, the narrative, if you like, that comes from the, the, the person who's accused or charged. But that that's a matter of fact that ultimately has to be resolved by a court if it comes to it. You said, I mean, it sounds from your piece that lots of the time it doesn't actually go to trial. Why is that? Is that because there's often not enough evidence or because the woman doesn't want to then carry on with I think, charges? I, I, I think there are hurdles at every stage that stop cases going forward. I think probably one of the greatest barriers to cases going forward is a fear of the system. And I think the system must be at fault if those who make complaints find themselves so frightened of what the process will involve that they would rather not go through with it and therefore accept as a consequence that the person who'd raped them will not be brought to justice and that's a serious failing with the system I'm I'm sure that's something that Sarah's probably more experienced and dealing with the victims of these things than I am but certainly looking at it from a legal point of view at every step of the way there is a lack of police resources to support women who come forward or or, or indeed men who complain of sexual offences and they are often felt that they're adrift and they have no real support and whereas, of course, those who are accused, there's a, there's a sort of structure around them. They do can get legal advice independently and so on. Whereas victims are not given any independent support or advice unless there happens to be... I mean, some police forces and some departments are better than others. But on the whole, I think there's a huge issue around the lack of support. So cases fail because the person who's made the complaint decides they can't go through with it or don't want to. But cases also fail because there's a lack of evidence. If you have two people in a room together and one says one thing and the other person says the other it's really quite difficult for prosecutors to make a decision that they're more likely there's more likely to be a conviction than an acquittal and they cannot bring charges unless they've come to the conclusion that the conviction is the more likely outcome that's what the law says so it's and it's very difficult and I think there's room for a lot of improvements particularly victim focused improvements in the way that cases are investigated and indeed prosecuted. Sarah, is that right that women often don't feel like they're going to be believed, so just don't don't end up going to trial? Uh, the vast majority of rapes are never reported in the first place. So when we talk about what is in the criminal justice system, what goes to the police, and then what makes it down the line to maybe a charge and maybe a prosecution, that might be 15% of rapes that are ever committed. We've got, you know, frankly, quite a blunt tool sometimes in the criminal justice system of how we deal with rape, and. You know, politicians we talk to, for example, think it's the only kind of answer. And their question to us would be, 
do you think that it just needs more money or you know better police leadership or whatever and actually it's a really blunt tool and we are kind of stuck as a society in not truly aiming ever to prevent rape or to stop it in the first place it's approached by policymakers across government departments who truly do have responsibility be it in education be it in welfare be it in health and be it in justice as something that's inevitable as something that can't really be tackled as something where they won't unpick the inequalities that are involved and we're kind of stuck in refusing to deal with some something that does enormous social harm. The young women who are assaulted at university, for example, can be deeply, deeply harmed. The question of whether they end up with a conviction is not really the point. Some of those women drop out. Some of those women, you know, they don't go on to have the lives they might have had. And this matters. This is an enormous social harm that we're all living with. But one of your earlier questions turned on kind of a myth that we can't really seem to get rid of, which is around, ah, there aren't enough convictions. There must be loads of false allegations. The idea that women or men who are assaulted ever wake up thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that, and wander down to the police station to bring the weight of the criminal justice system onto inspecting them and their behaviour is nonsense. Uh, there is a lot of research around this. There's CPS research. There's good academic research. The notion that women are blithely making it up because they regret it or they don't like the guy or they want to get him or something is just wrong. So we need to take a, a much bigger stand back look at what is going on what are the sexual ethics of the people who behave in this way why do we have such a high rate of this in the first place and what can be done to tackle it because it isn't just the courts I'm afraid it doesn't even deter if you look at repeat offence rates I mean you mentioned social harm and I think I'm right that the if you're accused of rape as a man you don't have anonymity absolutely yeah I mean do you think that also can be quite damaging for young men to be accused of rape and for that say it's not then proven in court for them to have to carry that that name for the rest of their life? I think there are two answers to that. So there's a big philosophical answer I'll come to. But firstly, the question about anonymity for defendants, in my experience, I've been in this work for quite a long time, comes up all the time as one of the key questions about rape. And I stick my neck out and say it's not the key question. The, the key questions are around why the system does not work for convicting or deterring this crime. If you want the, the practical answer around anonymity for defendants is no, because our system is fundamentally an open justice system and we need to know who is accused of what and why. The, the duty, if you like, on protecting those who are accused of a crime that has a lot of stigma around it, and we should talk about stigma because victims are stigmatised at least as much as those accused. The way of redressing this is to ensure we really, really protect the presumption of innocence, which we don't, and that we really, really um, act to stop the media so massively sensationalising these crime and any kind of sniff of it. Those things are really, really important. But you can't bring in anonymity for defendants as though it's something that is a kind of a fair fix when a defendant and a witness to her own rape are not equivalent in the system in the first place. So if we need to get onto some really big cultural stuff about looking at different resolutions for this crime, things like transformative justice and like conversations between victims and perpetrators, we should do that. But if the stigma of rape is apparently so high that we have to always turn these questions on damage to a defendant, then we're in the wrong place because we're not looking at the actual harm that is done. I could list you many, many categories of victim who never ever get anywhere near the police or near court. And the problem there is that the people who are offended 
turned against them, they know that they have impunity. They know that if they approach and assault women with mental health problems, women with learning disabilities who are very disproportionately victimised in terms of rape and so on, or in particular ex-partners who are a major set of those who complain of rape, the perpetrators, the men doing it, they know they pretty much have impunity. We're not addressing that as a society. Chris, you end your piece with some advice to spectator readers and to people with sons. What can you reiterate what that advice is if people are listening? Well, it's interesting because what got me thinking about this was a conversation with a good friend of mine, Adrian Childs, who obviously is a broadcaster himself, and his daughter was going off to university and we were having a discussion and he said to me, you know, well, you've done a lot of these cases and so on, and, and asked me, you know, what advice I'd give to her. It got me thinking about... You know, what do you say to young people who are going to in environments where increasingly there are issues around consent, which possibly in the past, or no doubt in the past, wouldn't have been addressed, wouldn't have been considered, that they would have been buried. As Sarah rightly says, of course, the great majority of them still are, and the great majority never end up in, in the police, but there's an increasing number that do. So I, I agree with Sarah 100% in this, that I think the only thing that, that really in the long term makes a difference is for everybody to think and understand more carefully about the consequences of what they do. Because only by people taking responsibility, and particularly young men taking responsibility, they cannot say, I was drunk and it was all seemed fine. Because, you know, that's not acceptable. That will inevitably, in many cases, lead to the crossing of boundaries in terms of consent. And, of course, place the, the woman at risk of serious harm and, and, the, and, and the young man at risk of being prosecuted. But if a woman says to a man, yes, fine, let's go ahead with it, and she's drunk, I mean, the next day, does, does that protect the man at all? Uh, well, he would no doubt rely on that as being evidence that she had capacity to consent if she said, yes, fine, let's go ahead with it. Because there's no the, the law doesn't prohibit sex after any amount, you know, small amount of alcohol or, 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 or a drinking per se. It protects women who are incapacitated by alcohol or, or drugs or anything else. So, frankly, if one was being sensible in giving advice to young people, it would be just do not get into situations where there is a risk. Don't take the risk that because of the consumption of alcohol that you will commit a sexual offence and that you will cause somebody very serious harm and, of course, place your entire future at risk. And, and young men have got to take responsibility for themselves. And I do think that, there, that there's probably an ignorance around that issue of capacity and alcohol. And, and there always has been. But I think nowadays, increasingly, people are saying, well, we need everybody needs to take responsibility for themselves. But it's just a particular feature of the last few years that I see case after case after case of people who never in the past would have entered the criminal justice process at all. But also, and I, I agree with this, these cases don't, in the end, go to court on the whole. And so they must, we must find some other way to support those who make complaints and to achieve a resolution that, that isn't just that all-or-nothing resolution of a criminal conviction, which is so improbable statistically, because the law you know, is, is very protective of the presumption of innocence. It's been eroded in some ways, particularly by the media. But the fact is that there is a very high standard of proof that has to be achieved to get a conviction. And so many, many women who have been the victim of these crimes will just never... There will never be a satisfactory resolution from the criminal justice system. Thank you, Chris and Sarah. And finally, have your friends been begging you for money? In this week's issue, Cosme Landersman complains that he gets daily requests for money from his nearest and dearest 
whether it's to support them on their latest literary venture or some sort of sponsored mountain exhibition or to raise money for charity. All well and good, but do we all have to keep giving to our friends? And is it ever okay to say no? Cosmo joins me now, together with our columnist James Dellingpole, who ran a successful crowdfunding campaign to raise money for his medical treatment. So Cosmo, what's your gripe with crowdfunders? I don't really mind crowdfunding so much as long as they don't crowdfund me. It's the volume, I think. I always respond to certain individual cases that are worthy and I'm very happy to help. It's the sheer number now of things, of projects from good to seem seemingly ridiculous and silly and should be discouraged. And what sort of thing are people asking for? Well, it seems there's nothing that people won't ask for. I've had for their, their novel that no one wants to read, their musical, their documentaries, or their favourite illness or favourite charity. Just a friend of mine recently was crowdfunding for her divorce. So it's, there's no, there seems to be no limit to what you can crowdfund for. James, you ran a GoFundMe campaign for your treatment for Lyme disease. Can, yeah, yeah. You, can you talk us through why you did that and what the result of it was? If Well, if you've got Lyme disease and you want to get treated on the NHS, you're stuffed. The, the NHS is not up to the job of, of treating this, this very debilitating illness. So you, you have to go elsewhere. And you're talking tens of thousands of pounds. I've, I'm quite connected in the world of Lyme now. And I know what you, what's necessary to, to treat the disease. And yeah, you need tens of thousands of pounds. But I, I totally agree with Cosmo, what, what he says. I don't think anyone who gave to my crowdfunding campaign was, was one of my close circle of friends. I don't think so. But there, 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 there may have been one, and nor did I bother them for it. It, it was, it was. So who, who were the it people? It was, it was the goodwill of my Twitter friends, of my, of my, the, the, the fans I've accumulated from journalism. But Lots James, can I just give this clear? You're, you're raising money for your personal treatment, not yeah. for the, the disease as a whole, God for no. research. No, 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 like no. That. You're not. And, that's very and different. You know I would be very untempted if some friend were to say, uh, "I'm climbing." Mount Kilimanjaro next next weekend, and I'm doing it for a really good cause. So will you? If will it you, was your cause, you, if it was Lyme you spi- No, no, I wouldn't actually. <laughs> no, they can just bugger off. I, I I think it's you are paying them to virtue signal and to have a, a jolly at your expense. I'm well up up for for helping people crowdfund movie projects or whatever, particularly if they align with my own political interests. I mean. I'm actually going to be crowdfunding soon for a for a global warming movie. Well, if if I weren't making that film, I would be contributing to that to that campaign. But generally, no. I why, I agree with Cosmo. Why should you fork out for friends to have fun? Particularly affluent friends. Yes. I know friends yes. who have like three houses. I think, well, if you care so passionately about this cause, flog one of your houses in the south of France and give them the money. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's it's right. quite, it's, it's Cosmo, do you think it's more admirable to do what James is doing to actually say, look, I, I need treatment. Can you help me? Rather than saying, I'm going to you know, raise money uh, for a cancer. Treatment. I kind of admire the raw honesty of it. It's, you know, listen, I need this. I have the condition. Fine. He's not virtuing singly. He's not saying, I'm doing this to help everyone. Hey, look at me. Look how I'm going to suffer for the greater good, like many people who do six mountains in a row or whatever they do these days. So, yes, I, 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 I admire that. And, James, what about these friends who didn't give to your campaign? What do, you know, what do you make of that? I wouldn't have expected them to. In, you know what? Until this podcast, I hadn't even thought that my friends hadn't donated. They just they just didn't. And also, I think... Were they actually aware of it? Possibly not. I mean, so I... We don't know if it was no, a deliberate choice. I think so. Look, I lie. I, I'm sure that some of my friends may, may have given, but generally, 
they didn't. I felt slightly awkward initially asking people for money to be cured, but actually the way I presented it I think was an honest and, and reasonable one, which is if you like you people, if you like James Dellingpole, if you like the, the articles I write, the, the podcasts I do, then help me get well so that I can do more of this shit rather than dying slowly of a horrible disease. So it seemed to be a very good quid pro quo. And they responded in that exactly in that way, very, very generously. It was amazing. Did you receive any negative responses online? Yes, I did. Interestingly, um, there were certain people who... Just as there are, there are people out there who really, really hate homeopathy more than they hate almost anything in the world, and so they, they, they get really vicious. In the same way, there's a really, really narrow clique of people who are obsessed with the idea that chronic Lyme disease does not exist, and that therefore I was going on the internet asking for money for a non-existent problem. And I was thinking, well, I, I think I would know the symptoms, whether, whether they were real or not, you know, whether I'm suffering or not. And I'm not the kind of person who'd just go and con people into giving money for no reason. Well, I was, uh, James, I wonder if some people, you're, you have many fans, and I've, I would imagine over the years you've accumulated a lot of foes, if a lot of people would think, I'm not going to give that money, any money to that bugger in the hope that actually he might croak yes. and he'll stop writing all those terrible pieces. I did get that. I did get quite a few people on Twitter and stuff saying, well, hey, you've got a really horrible disease. You deserve it. And some people even thought that because I don't believe in global warming, that therefore... I know you, the, you the, deny the, climate change, yeah. but you... you I deny climate change and therefore these ticks were, were spreading because of climate change. Therefore, I, I was being hoist by my own petard. One person did say to me, I've always been an enemy of yours on Twitter, but and I hate everything you stand for. But I'm going to give you money because actually I I feel sorry for you and 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 you know this is this is not about politics. This is about life, and that was really touching. Did you manage to raise enough for the treatment? Yeah, I did, but it's very hard to know how much to raise. And actually, I I, I originally aimed to raise forty grand, and. I stopped halfway through. I worked out how much I was going to need for the treatment and I thought actually nice though it would be to get another 20 grand. It was probably over-egging the pudding and I could probably just about cope with the 20. And Cosmo, you've, in your piece you mentioned that you've been dubbed the new Bill Gates for past stinginess. I mean, are you very stingy when it comes to these well, some things I think you get so many. I mean, you know, I'm a man of limited resources. I have my own things I like to contribute to. I don't really want to talk about them or, you know, ask other people to contribute to them. So I only have a little bit to give and I give them small amounts, you know, and uh, unless you give something more, you know, you do get teased. And is there anything that you would ever consider crowdfunding for? Well, to be honest, I have crowdfunded The Odd Friend. Yeah, I did my friend Emily Hill's book. I've recently helped out a friend who's, who's running for some brain cancer thing. So occasionally I do. I'm not quite the Scrooge figure I make up. It's just that it, at times it becomes too much. I don't ask people to fund my unpublishable novels or, or works of journalism. <laughs> and the world is spared, and it's a, it's a good thing. Thank you, Cosmo and James. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do let us know. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. We always like to hear from you. And in this week's issue, you can find all of the pieces discussed, as well as pieces from Piers Morgan, Joan Bakewell and Douglas Murray. And if you're a fan of Douglas Murray, please do join him in conversation with the philosopher Roger Scruton for a discussion on the future of conservatism. It's a Spectator event. It's going to be held on the 7th of May and you can get tickets at spectator.co.uk forward slash conservatism. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Merian Global Investors. Merian is proud to be the principal partner of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, together sharing commitment to providing the space to perform.